about to hear my conversation with our chief fixed income strategist, Dustin Reed. We talk all about the Fed pivot and gearing down and expectations out of central banks going forward. We touch on Japan, the U.S. midterm elections and what that might mean for portfolios and financial markets, as well as what trades are happening in the fixed income portfolios. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm back with our chief fixed income strategist, Dustin Reed. Dustin, welcome back. Hey, thanks very much for having me back, Matt. I thought we'd start the conversation today uh, by talking about something that's been getting a lot of press lately, which is this idea of a Fed pivot. Um, I'd love to just maybe start with your take on the probability of that happening and and what you think is behind uh, that sort of chatter. Sure. Okay. So I think I think it's a great question. It's probably the question du jour, so to speak. I think that we are seeing the beginnings of a change in tone from the Fed and, uh, and other global central banks, to be fair. The term pivot, I, I personally don't love pivot because pivot to me implies, at least to me, implies a change in direction. And I don't think that is exactly what's about to happen here. What I think is about to happen, and the term I'm using is uh, is gearing down, because you're basically still traveling in the same direction. You're just going at a a slower pace or a slower delta. I mean, it's kind of like driving a, a British supercar near top speed and you're getting further down the road, uh, but you gear down and get to the same finish line and uh, you're just using a slightly different pathway to get there, even though the end goal remains the same, which is obviously to you know, squash inflation and put a little bit of uh, two-way two-way markets back in the labor market, so to speak. So I think the you know what we've seen in the last ten days or so, give or take, is a number of district Fed presidents, particularly Kashkari and Daly uh, and Evans, who are all uh, not voters this year, for what it's worth, uh, as well as some stuff from the new, relatively new vice chair Brainard, talking about maybe. A different way, a different way of uh, of moving on in the next in the next part of the cycle, and some of that, and there's even some intricacies within those four. Um, for example, Kashkari has essentially said that he doesn't need to see core inflation uh, slow. Uh, he would be okay as long as it was uh, steady, uh, as, even if it held up at a high level, which is actually quite quite interesting and and in a way potentially moving the goalposts. Um, but we've we've seen a little bit more kind of two-way risk from some of these Fed speakers, and the Brainard stuff obviously is important given that she's the number two and and vice chair, and you know she has talked about the idea of potentially slowing things down. So I think that ahead of the FOMC meeting next week, and we are recording this ahead of the FOMC meeting, a few business days ahead of the FOMC meeting next week, it would be surprising to me if we didn't see at least some of this language make its way into Powell's press conference because Powell, if he's, you know, Chairman Powell for the Fed, if he's doing his job, what I properly, as I would say, he is supposed to 
do the press conference as, you know, representing the median person of the committee. And in that way, not necessarily talk his own, his own book, but really kind of encapsulate where the tone of the committee not only is, but how the tone of the committee is evolving. And I think it would be extremely unlikely given that we've had these conversations or at least these comments from these members that I just, I just mentioned for those not to come in and they're, we're waiting on confirmation because we're in a bit of a blackout here ahead of the meeting, but kind of waiting on confirmation from other board members if they are looking that way as well. But I think the message from Powell is going to be, let's try and slow things. You know, we're going to do 75 next week on November 2nd, but going forward, we've added a lot of, um, we've taken out a lot of accommodation and we need to uh, probably think about the next, the next phase of the cycle. And I think the risk for markets from that perspective is the markets don't really pay attention to the entire message, which is we're still getting to the same finish line. We might just be doing it at slower increments and maybe deeper into 2023. Right. But, um, uh, you know, but, but we're, you know, pivoting for lack of a better term, the market might just see that as pivoting and we're going to see, and we have seen obviously in the last 10 days or so, pretty, pretty good rally in, in, in what I would call general risk sentiment and risk assets and, you know, high beta assets and that, and that sort of thing. And the global environment is obviously helping that. I mean, the UK story, which we've talked about before, seems to have somewhat fixed itself out. Right. Uh, spreads are narrowing, sterling and cable, you know, are bid. Um, the RBA, even though inflation is relatively high, has has geared down a little bit. Um, ECB this morning, we're recording this on Thursday, so the ECB this morning introduced what I would say, and it's still early, but a little bit more two-way risk in terms of going forward, i.e. introducing the economy as a important part of i.e. growth, the economic growth and the outlook as an important part of how the bank is going to manage uh, the, the next phase of the um, the rate hike cycle going forward along with inflation, right? And that, that's important. So if, if you know, right. if German, if, you know, if Germany and, and, and the Eurozone growth tanks, then the ECB in theory is going to take that now more into account than it would have it would have before, even though it's technically a, a single mandate, central bank only, i.e. i.e. prices. Then obviously here in the Bank of Canada, we had a surprise this week with the bank doing 50. The market was pretty pretty close to price for 75, not entirely. I think that we were going at around 68 or 69 basis points price. So that was, you know, that was definitely a bit of a surprise by the bank doing 50. So you're kind of getting some sprinkling of these gearing down you know, ideas from other places is not just, it's not just fed driven. And in fact, we haven't had the meeting yet next week. So let's, let's be, sure. let's be, let's be fair about that. Cause I could be absolutely wrong, which I mean, obviously happens. Um, but I think that is the direction of travel. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we've seen equities and the general bid for risk appetite here last, the last little bit. And, um, obviously seeing a pretty significant adjustment uh, at the front end of not necessarily only the, the U.S. curve, I would actually say less, but, you know, front end of the Canadian curve, fives, uh, you know, the Aussie curve, uh, you know, big, big moves in the back end of the U.K. curve, uh, you know, all of which we're obviously watching and and, and, and at times trading. So, uh, yeah, so it's a very interesting time from that perspective. I and mean, we've obviously had uh, a, a long run here on we think inflation is going to be pretty hot uh, for, you know, a, well over a year, you know, probably a year and a half. And, and I actually think that core inflation will still be very, very sticky. And, um, 
there is a risk of 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 the of the banks kind of giving up the ghost a little a little bit early here. Right. Um, but I think where this all will thread together will be a longer hiking cycle at smaller chunks as opposed to uh, a shorter cycle at at higher at, at higher clips. And I think we're in the process of that inflection point. And you know, inflection points in markets are not only tough to call but tough to trade. But I think that's I think that's where we're at. So that's kind of where you know where I'm thinking from kind of a Fed and um, you know the pivot the pivot question, which I again I would I like gear down, at least at this point, uh, right. gear down better than pivot because I think pivot has a slightly different connotation. Great context, Dustin. I, I'm curious what the central bankers are seeing out of the data that uh, is precipitating sort of a softening of language. If you look at Bank of Canada in their yeah. actions, yeah. Um, you still have very robust employment numbers. Yeah. Uh, you still have really high inflation numbers. So the For sure. it seems as though the data would suggest that they should be on path to to hawkishness as they've sort of laid out. So so what's behind that? Yeah. So yeah, I I think you're right on. I think I think that's absolutely correct. It's probably a little bit more to answer the question first, and then kind of backfill it with some detail. Sure. I think the I think the the banks. I mean, clearly the housing story here in the U.S. Uh, is has been significantly affected. So, kind of some right. of the output stuff, although not a lot yet. And part of that, I think, is because the employment market, you know, here and in the U.S. Uh, has remained pretty pretty hot. Um, and the inflation numbers also remain hot. And I, and I tend to agree. So I. I, I'm a little surprised that we're seeing this language. Uh, I I would have expected, and I think the goalposts are changing a bit, and I think that's why they are doing that. Um, you know, for example, yesterday taking the BOC uh, taking the BOC example from this week. So here's a quote from the the statement. So the bank's preferred measures of core inflation are not yet showing meaningful evidence that underlying price pressures are easing. Near-term inflation expectations remain high increasing the risk that elevated inflation becomes entrenched. I mean, that, that is very, that is very <laughs> hawkish language and yeah, it's, sure, it's kind of sure. al alarm bell language. Right? right. And yet the bank geared down, I don't want to say pivot, <laughs> so the bank, yeah, geared, right. the bank geared down, right. Having, having done a hundred in July, 75 in September, and then 50 this week with the market leaning towards 75 for sure. So, yeah, it's a little, it, it is a little odd. And obviously, you know, you had a, a market that was pricing about 58 for the bank here, a market that was pricing about 58 basis points, maybe two and a half weeks ago. And then there was a big, you know, the, um, the fall IMF World Bank meetings in DC and right. Macklem, Governor Macklem was in DC and did the big press conference uh, on the Friday, the week before last. And it was quite hawkish. Market repriced a bit, kind of from 57, 58 to maybe 67, 68, 69 basis points leaning towards that. And then you have this language that I just mentioned a minute ago and the bank does 50 and kind of sitting there, you know, scratching your head saying, okay, well, what did I, what did I miss? And I think in some ways, um, you know, the bank is probably, probably, you know, using this old cliche, rob, robbing Peter to pay Paul, where maybe it wanted to save that extra 25 this round in case it needs it later on, because in fact, what it believes around inflation, which I think it does believe or else they wouldn't put it in the statement, which is a very, very formal document, right? Right. Um, so maybe this is kind of what I mean when, okay, maybe we're going to go deeper into 23, 2023 with, with chunks of 25, just to kind of 
do the tweaks. Um, and maybe that, and maybe that's what they're thinking. I think that is, I think that is what, what the bank is thinking in, in particular. Uh, so I think the terminal rate for the bank here is still f- at least four and a quarter and with upside risk, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw, we saw four and a half, but I think, I, I think that the bank, is, the bank and other central banks are becoming concerned about, you know, for lack of a better term, breaking something or, you know, whether things that they know or things that they don't know. And, um, a lot, clearly a lot has been done. I mean, there's no denying that. And there's been a big rate increase across the globe since, you know, earlier this year and except maybe for the housing market, or at least with the big exception of the housing market, maybe haven't seen the full impact of that yet. Cause we're kind of on the cusp of, where are we? I mean, from the Fed perspective, eight eight months ish. So I mean, you're not even really three quarters into it, and that would be kind of the the earliest window where you usually see the policy lag. I mean, a lot of people would say four okay. to six quarters, or even even longer. So a lot of this a lot of this we haven't seen the lagged impact yet, and I think that uh, banks might be concerned that they and you know we've kind of done enough, and let's kind of see where things go. Not that they're going to pause, but they want to maybe kind of keep a little bit in the back pocket for later. And I think that's I think particularly coming back to the BOC, I think that's where the BOC is at because I believe them when they say what they, when they say that what, what they were saying about inflation that I just said a few minutes ago, I mean, they wouldn't say that if they didn't believe it. So I think that um, they are hoping that inflation comes down and that the work that they have done, the accommodation that they have removed, it has removed, so to speak, is going to do its job as, as it should, but with a, you know, with a lagged, with a lagged impact. And I also think that, um, you know, I also think that there are other central banks that are probably seeing similar things. Um, and so that's why we're seeing a bit of a, I wouldn't call it global coordination, but I would call it, uh, you know, a global timing in terms of a lot of people, a lot of banks have been hiking significantly and now it's time to kind of gear down and, and enter the next phase of the cycle. Great. Well, maybe we'll we'll turn to a geography where pivot is not in the the language, which is Japan. Uh, sure. They they've been an outlier uh, in uh, their central bank actions uh, all throughout the year. Uh, what's right. your latest on on Japan? So I think Japan, to your point exactly, I think it does remain very much an outlier. I, there is a meeting uh, this week, so you know, under the auspice that anything's possible, I think that. Uh, uh, I, I don't think we're going to see anything major from the bank. I do think that the bank will continue to ratchet up slightly their 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 CPI forecast. But importantly, I think the bank will continue to see a pretty significant deceleration in inflation, especially as they view core core uh, inflation uh, for 2023. And that'll keep the bank on the sidelines. And we've obviously had this really interesting uh, dynamic with yield curve control and uh Effectively, the twenty, uh, the, sorry, the ten-year sector, being stuck around uh, twenty-five uh, basis points. Although some of these off-the-run uh, bond issues that are not exactly ten years, um, either just above or just below, are actually kind of trading above above that now. So there's some people saying that the yield curve control model, or idea, or principle is uh, is a bit is a bit broken because depending on the issue that you look at when it's off the run, it's actually not being contained. But you know, kind of barring all that, um, you know, we've seen a pretty big steepening 
in the back end of the uh, the JGB curve, which I you know I, I've liked for a long time, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And we have a little bit on uh, of that um, in in the portfolio. Um, but the real interesting thing I think also in Japan is obviously the <clears throat> the is dollar yen or, or yen in general. And we've seen a significant amount of intervention since you and I did uh, uh, a podcast here um, in in this space. And, and the bank, well, the, I should say the market continues to test the bank, the BOJ, um, and the bank continues to come in and spend what I would consider to be a significant amount of money in the right. ten in the tens of billions of dollars uh, almost every time. Uh, it's it's becoming a pretty pretty significant physical intervention, and particularly as dollar yen moved above 150, we've seen uh, the BOJ, Bank of Japan, come in on behalf of the Ministry of Finance and uh, who really has the call, to be fair, and um, and come in in size. But you know this this Mundell principle, which we've talked about, I think once or twice before on these podcasts, where you have a f- free flow of capital, uh, it's very very difficult to um, to cap your interest rates and have a uh, a currency that's that's going to not depreciate. And you're right. you're clearly seeing that um, you know around. So I. I, I generally think that the bank and, and MOF, the Ministry of Finance, is probably, although it's been a big move, I don't think it's absolutely upset with the with the aggregate level of dollar yen. I don't think it actually minds. I think corporates in Japan, domestic corporates, are actually doing quite well. EBITDA is doing well, and it's obviously very helpful for you know the economy from a you know from an export perspective to have your currency sure. very very weak. And so I think the it does help. So I don't think they're absolutely upset with the aggregate level. What I don't think they like is the volatility and the gapping of the currency, anything more than maybe two or three yen a day. So when you kind of see these two, two and a half move, yen moves, on, maybe on a dollar yen basis, you're going to probably see more likely than not um, you know, the BOJ, Bank of Japan, come in on behalf of the government and try and quell the um you know the volatility and and the level but uh you know they came in originally around 146 and we've traded well above 150 here so we're well well above the original intervention levels and i think that i think that says something and probably underscores probably underscores kind of what i just said around not being completely upset with the with the absolute level it's just more about the delta or the pace of change or the or the volatility so i expect to see more of that push pull or battle okay. so to speak between the market but i don't think the bank is going to give up on the yield control yield curve control stuff and we've talked about it a lot but probably until next year and i think i think q2 next year is probably as reasonable a spot as as anywhere else once uh the current governor's term is up and uh and they feel that they're going to take on uh, a new path, but I would want to see where the where the bank thinks core core inflation is going to be before they give up the ghost on uh, on the total yield curve control. But we do we do continue to trade around these markets, and they are they are really interesting and really uh, really fascinating to trade around. Great. Um, maybe I'll turn uh, just for the final topic to talk about uh, U.S. Uh, politics. Uh, we're sure. approaching November, uh, and uh, it's midterm year. Uh, right. right now, the uh, according to the horse race or, or the polls, uh, it looks like Republicans are uh, favored uh, fairly heavily to win the House uh, yep. in a bit of a toss up on the Senate. Uh, yep. What's your view on on who wins? And then maybe more importantly, does it matter? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a good question. Uh, obviously, the politics out of the U.S. Uh, had a, a run there for a while where it mattered a lot. Obviously, 2016 with the Trump victory was was right. significant. Um, the, the Georgia Senate race uh, after the 2020 election into 
Jan 21 was obviously very, very significant from a fiscal perspective and was basically the bedrock that got some of those very large monster one trillion plus packages passed, right? So that it you know can have a, a significant impact. I think that um, so I do think the Republicans will take the House. I think that's pretty pretty steady at this point. I mean anything's possible. You know, turnout counts, but I think that uh, I think the Republicans will take the House. So that would be that would be an effective change in leadership, right? Because the Democrats have it now with Pelosi as Speaker. Right. I think the Senate is is really really tough to call. I, I I mean not to not to cop out on it, but I think it is I think it is a bit of a coin toss. I'm watching I'm watching um, uh, the PA race, the Pennsylvania race for sure. Right. Uh, do, the Doctor Oz race. Doctor Oz, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know they just had the debate this week, and the the Democrat candidate did did not perform exceptionally well, and. Uh, you know, poll pollings are that just polls. They're not results, but, but, sure. um, but Oz popped up by a, a big handful of percentage points, um, maybe small handful of, of maybe small two handfuls of percentage points. Um, you know, after, after the debate, the Georgia race is very interesting with Herschel Walker uh, running against uh, Warnock. Um, so, and that, that race, I don't think is over yet. Uh, so I think those, you know, I think it's, I think it's very close and, um, the net net of it all is, is probably a, a, uh, a, uh, a split, uh, congressional government where at a minimum you've got a, a, you know, Biden, and then you've got, uh, Republicans running Congress and maybe Republican, um, House and a Democrat Senate that's either very, very close with obviously, a, you know, a mansion in there on the Democrat side who often right. cites, you know, at least doesn't necessarily go with the, the general tide of the Democratic votes, uh, the Democrat votes, I should say. Um, and then there's obviously Senna from uh, from Arizona as well. Uh, so I think the net net of it all is probably not a lot of fiscal policy once the new Congress comes in in Jan 23. That's that's my guess of, of the whole thing where I think there could be a little bit of a wiggle from a market's perspective. And I'm not convinced this is going to happen, but I think it's just worth outlining for our, our listenership and for, you know, our investors. I think if it's very clear that the Democrats are going to get very little to nothing done in the back half of Biden's term, which looks likely, I think there's a rising risk of a, uh, a fiscal package that gets passed in what people call, it's not very elegant, but the lame, the lame duck um, uh, in lame duck Congress, which is basically after the election and then before the new Congress gets sworn in in January 23, that, that two months, give or take. And the, the, the rationale behind that is, you know, the Democrats clearly have the run of the place now with both houses in Congress, as well as obviously the administration, the White House. Um, so if we can't do something, uh, once this changes, let's try and push something past the goal line now while, while we still have a say, uh, even though, even though things are going to be, you know, the deck, the deck chairs are changing in Jan 23. And so why I'm not convinced that that's going to be a big deal is I'm not convinced that a, a lame duck fiscal package is going to be a big size. Um, so we're used to having a, you know, very large programs, particularly coming out of COVID and coming out of COVID, obviously in, in the trillions, I think that a size of a package in lame duck in lame duck, uh, session is maybe 200 or 250 billion, which is obviously not a small amount of money. It's a large amount of money, but from a percent of nominal GDP perspective, I don't think it's, 
I don't think it's a game changer. What makes me concerned is, you know, we watch, you know, watching the global landscape here. I'm sure many people who are listening are very aware of, of what's kind of been happening in the UK the last month or so with the fiscal package and and all that and, and, and the fallout. The, the numbers around, even if you, you agree or you don't agree with what the, the UK Tory party and trust, former PM trust was trying to do, the, the numbers were not massive. Uh, in terms of, uh, but what would have needed to happen probably is new issuance during a time of significant inflation, and you are already uh, going to be, you know, have budget deficit probably. So the markets didn't like that, and we kind of know what what already happened. Now the U.S. is a bit of a different ball of wax always because it is the U.S. and it is also the global reserve currency, right? And right. so would a similar um, would the market try to punish the U.S. market or like U.S. assets, but I would say, would the market try to punish U.S. assets if there was, say, a $200 billion, you know, 1% of GDP uh, fiscal package that tried to get pushed over the line during the lame duck session? And so would would the fallout for markets be more uh, more significant than the package itself. And so that's kind of what I've been focusing on and would it would it not. My mm-hmm. my guess and I could easily be wrong, but my guess is that the markets are not going to get as uh overly concerned about something like that happening, some sort of package like that happening uh versus the UK for some of the reasons I just I just outlined. That said I can't I can't completely discount it because this is a say very very fickle market that appears ready to pounce on any kind of thing that looks like it's going to break or fiscal misstep, uh, et cetera. So while I don't think it's a big deal from an election perspective, I think that it it could be. So obviously it's all an answer to the question around the midterm. So I think, you know, the midterms are going to go one way, but somewhat ironically, what happens between the midterms and the swearing in of new Congress in January, at least for now, might be the more the more interesting thing. I would also highlight, and we've had this, we've seen this movie before many times. Um, we may not know the outcome of the Senate race uh, or the balance of power in the Senate the day after the midterms, because I, I would not be surprised if it was that close that one seat mattered and we might be either contesting, run, seeing a contested election or uh, an automatic recount, depending on the state law, you know, you're within, you know, point point five percentage points of each other, and it automatically triggers, and you need a few weeks to kind of sort through it. Plus, plus, I think voter turnout will be high, and there'll be a lot of mail-in ballots, and sometimes those are not necessarily counted before the day, depending on the state law, etc. So, we may not actually know the answer on the Senate, and therefore, you know, if you know, which way it's going, uh, particularly the Senate. Uh, you know, the, the, the day after the day after the election. So I would just keep that in mind. You know, markets don't generally like uncertainty. We can we can deal with bad news, can deal with good news, but dealing with uncertainty is usually not not great. So I keep an eye out on that, uh, just in case you do kind of thread that that very, very small pathway, a two-way, we're not sure yet which way things are going. So that's kind of what I'm thinking on the election uh, for the next few weeks. So there is definitely some some market risk around there, but that's how right. I would kind of frame it. 
Excellent. Uh, talking about sort of uh, the election, maybe specifically, and in, in, uh, what sounds like a, fair, a fairly um, lower probability tail risk event. Uh, do you have anything in the portfolio that accounts for that? Or in general, what have you been doing uh, as far as trades within the uh, fixed income suite of portfolios? So we've been lightening up a little bit on uh, this this short duration trade that we've had on for a long time and has obviously served us you know reasonably well for the year as yields have risen um, kind of circling back to where we were at the beginning of the chat right. our chat here the uh, you know the you know the, the 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 notion of a pivot or gearing down you know whether you believe it or not I think the market is clearly latching on to that you know, that idea. So it kind of behooves the notion of maybe being, you know, a little bit more neutral, long end duration in particular, uh, and maybe even uh, a little bit more than that. So I think that's been a a very active trade that we've been looking at in the portfolio. But within that, and one thing I would would, uh, recommend to investors and advisors to keep an eye on, uh, we've been spending a lot of time on you know, the broad term is linkers, which is basically inflation, you know, inflation link bonds or, you know, in the U.S. tips, right? Everyone knows tips. And then in Canada, real return bonds. Um, right. A lot of the duration that we are picking up, particularly at the long end, has been focused on the real return bond or, you know, or, or inflation, sorry, inflation protected uh, securities tips in the U.S. Uh, and you can buy them all over the world in, in 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 many many countries, which we've also done. And the rationale behind that is that you're getting a pretty good compensation with real yields. So, for example, 30-year real yields in the U.S. are running at around 1.7%. So you're getting 1.7 plus stripping out inflation, right? So that's X inflation. So you get paid the inflation portion. And then you get 1.7% real on you know on top of that. So the yields are quite uh, are quite attractive. And if you're kind of getting to this inflation, uh, sorry, this inflection point in the cycle, uh, it's not a bad place uh, traditionally to start locking in some of those uh, longer duration type gains in in real return, in real return bonds. So we've been spending a fair bit of time looking at that, legging into those trades. And that's been, I would say, one of the favorites. Constantine's done a really great job in terms of kind of helping the team, uh, you know, uh, and leg, leg into those those types of those types of trades. So we carry them, you know, across the portfolios in our universal funds and our, you know, in the global fund mandate, unconstrained, like, you know, all, all those things, obviously. Um, so I think that that's, that's definitely the, the big one since you and I probably last spoke. I also think that um, and, and we have been, we haven't really touched on currencies here too, too much, except for yen. But um, I, I would say, you know, I've been pretty dollar bullish for a long time. And, and it, it, it pains me in a way to, at this point in the cycle, not be dollar bullish. But I think with this gearing down, and I think with what we're going to get with the Fed, if I'm right, the market is going to start to shed its relatively long US dollar position. Um, and if the market thinks that banks are going to kind of take it easy here and put a lot more emphasis on the global economic outlook as, as it relates to the policy path going forward, then high beta currencies like Canada, Australia, you know, a few others, you know, sh- should in theory rally if, if, if global risk assets are, are on the rise. And, uh, so we've had a pretty short, uh, Canadian dollar or long dollar Canada position throughout our portfolios, whether that's option plays or 
uh, increasing the hedge ratios. So we have, you know, generally over the last number of quarters, I would say, we've we've been in the process of dialing that back to be a little bit more neutral on our long U.S. dollar uh, positions. And I think that at least for now, and I, we could go back long dollars in a bit, to be fair, but from like a tactical trading, tactical alpha perspective, I think that is. I think that is the more likely direction of travel here uh, to be a little bit more neutral, maybe even a, it almost pains me to say it, but a little bit more short U.S. dollars here for the next for the next little bit. Um, a lot of it depends on how the Fed meeting goes on November second, and and what the read of that meeting is, and 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 those sorts of things. Um, but but that those are some of the some of the trades, some of the bigger trades we've been doing. Obviously, you know, we continue to trade around the European shorting the curve, right. uh, the Japan trade, which we talked about. I wouldn't say coming back to part of your question, I wouldn't say we have a a trade on on the fiscal side per se, mostly because I think the balance of risks are that even if something gets done, I, I think it's I think it's not going to be a driver because I think. It won't be seen as big of a deal as the UK story for some of the reasons I outlined. So we don't have a, a trade on per se, but I would say we're watching it obviously and ready to ready to kind of go. And then obviously we've been, as we talked about in the last um, the last podcast, we did expect, you know, at some point, I would say maybe a little early given what happened this week, but at some point the Bank of Canada to gear down before the Fed uh, right. and for the long end yields uh, in Canada to. Uh, move lower quicker uh, than than the U.S. So we've seen a pretty significant move this week, you know, on the back of the U.K. Sorry, on the back of the BOC uh, stuff. So that's a trade we still have on long duration, particularly long duration in a nominal perspective, but also the real perspective, but nominal perspective on the Canada side. So that's been, you know, okay in in the last couple of days as the uh, as as you know in the wake of the BOC meeting. So yeah, so those are some of the the big kind of curve plays and geographical plays and currency plays that we have on uh, in the portfolio at the moment. Dustin, thank you as always, very informative and insightful. Uh, I look forward to having you back next time where we can talk about the the Fed meeting in November. That sounds great. Thanks a lot. Look forward to it. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.